0: Mike Walsh and you're listening to Between Worlds. It was uh, wonderful reading through your bio uh, because when I was looking through it, I actually saw you've lived this incredible life of adventure. You've lived in a wide variety of countries from Fiji to Senegal. You speak five languages. <laughs> And I think the best part of all was looking at your family because you've climbed Mount Kilimanjaro with your father you went uh, whitewater rapid uh, adventuring with your mother in Alaska what's happening here is this is Wes Anderson directing your life story
1: <laughs> I wish that he would it would be beautifully framed if he did so I would definitely take that call <laughs>
0: so so tell me you know I'm sitting here having a cup of tea with Flynn Coleman who's just written a wonderful book uh, a human algorithm she's an international human rights lawyer a social activist a professor and I guess my first question is, how does a a lawyer end up writing a book about algorithms?
1: Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor to have a cup of tea and to be on your podcast. So I have long been interested at the intersection of technology and human rights. And many years ago, I worked in an organization called the Genocide Prevention Center. And we were pioneering a way to use technology for humanitarian use, which at the time meant satellite imagery. And even when we succeeded, when we had negotiated with the Russians to get access to the satellites (laughs) where we could see from space, what was happening on the ground, we were looking for evidence of things like crimes against humanity, like mass graves. And even when we succeeded and everything went right, we could only see what had happened after everyone was already dead and gone. And while it's incredibly important to be able to document atrocity, this was, of course, incredibly frustrating that we couldn't do more. And so I could envision a future where we might be able to use technology um, in creative and beneficial ways to protect rights and save lives. And so I went on to write and think and research and investigate these issues. And (laughs) to make a long story short, eventually a human algorithm was born.
0: Right. And I I think that's something that people are only starting to appreciate now, that AI and algorithms and automation are not just a technological construct. They're a mirror and a reflection of who we are and our values in our society
1: so beautifully said exactly i think that one of the really existential interesting fascinating and terrifying parts of this is exactly as you said that ai and all technology is a mirror of who we are and it will mirror the unconscious and conscious biases and prejudices of its designers and the other thing about ai is while we've always been creating technology and using tools there's nothing new about that um, we're not going to have nearly as much time to assimilate to the fast, exponential trajectory of growth in terms of building synthetically intelligent tools and technologies. So we're really at a crossroads in terms of needing to be intentional about what we're building if we want a chance of building a brighter future.
0: This this was perhaps the most interesting part of the book for me mm. was actually not the stuff about the future, but about <laughs> the past. And, uh, you know, because you went back and traced really the sort of co-evolution of humanity with our tools and technologies and, and you know we sometimes talk about technology as if it's just iphones but but the interesting thing is i think is you really realize that uh, things like language and social structures are technology as well
1: indeed i am very fond of all of the work uh, that went into thinking about that because as you said you know a lot of us spend a lot of time thinking about the future but technology is as old as humanity itself we've always been building tools and inventing things um, and using inventions in new ways and as you said you know, it's important to remember that, yes, iPhones and AI and all the fancy new technology, of course, is what we think about when we think of a, you know, a new tool, but fire is technology, yeah. language is technology, celestial navigation is technology. So I think that that also really brings home that, while there are some new questions, some of these are the oldest questions we've ever asked ourselves as human beings.
0: And, and, and I guess, you know, when you look looking through that lens, the, the technologies that have the biggest impact are the ones that connect us Uh, Or allow the transmission of ideas or innovations at at greater scale and 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 the interesting example I think you pointed out there was sort of the the Lutheran revolution, you know, the 95 theses, which would have been sort of an isolated act of rebellion if it wasn't (laughs) for the printing press.
1: Yes, um, indeed, Gutenberg and Martin Luther and the 95 Theses uh, are featured in the book. And exactly, I think that that story is interesting for a lot of ways. First of all, some of us are probably familiar with the Protestant Reformation or the printing press in some way. But I think it also shows that the world is complex, and Martin Luther or any of us couldn't possibly have understood the power of the combinatorial forces of his rebellion against the schism in the church. But then we had the printing press, so it went. I think I say, you know, it went viral many centuries ago because the printing press was suddenly saying, "Hey, this is a hot
0: topic." I, I think your exact phrase was "16th century viral," <laughs> which I thought was wonderful. You know. yeah,
1: <laughs> so exactly, and to think about all of the, the complex interplay of how something might go 16th century. Viral, and then so on and so forth, and that um, these technologies can kind of unlock ideas, and as you said, scale them in an unprecedented way.
0: So, if you look, if you think about AI then as a technology in that context, you really have to think about it as on its impact on human society and the way it becomes a platform for other innovations and other broader impacts on on who we are.
1: Indeed, I think that part of the complexity of our modern world is that there's not, you know, no one of these things is happening in a vacuum. So part of, you know, AI in terms of the term artificial intelligence has been around for a long time, you know, since Alan Turing and arguably before that and kind of the word being coined, quote unquote, in the 1950s at a conference in Dartmouth. What's interesting about where we are now is we've always collected data but now we have the tools to potentially unleash the analysis of that data. So I think one of the things I talk about the book that you're also pointing out is that none of this happens in isolation. And if we're going to want to have a shot of building a better future for our children's children, we're going to need to restructure our political institutions, economic institutions, and societal institutions because, for example, if we're just focused on a growth profit-based model for building these tools, we're not ever going to really be able to find the moral courage and moral imagination to think beyond profit and towards purpose and meaning and what it means to live in a society with tools that are potentially smarter than we are.
0: We're at this embryonic moment with this technology. Mm -hmm. Is there a danger that we try to embed too much of our values and our regulation and kind of limitations at this moment? You know where we're in a sense, we're trying to regulate something that hasn't happened yet.
1: So I would say yes, so obviously, as a human rights lawyer, I think about the idea of ethical frameworks and regulations, and I do propose, as you know in the book, and I'm not the only one to have to have thought of this is that we use the international human rights framework um, as a way to think about how we're going to create the future of legal systems and societal social contracts in this brave new world. However, what you pointed out is so essential because, in order to have the proper ethical and regulatory discussions, we need to step back and have a lot more intentionality about what we're doing. And there's so much we don't know. Yeah. So on the one hand, yes, as a stopgap, we need regulations to protect ourselves, to protect others. On the other hand, as you said, it's so embryonic and there's so much we need to discuss and have what David White calls courageous conversations first. Because some of this has precedent you know, in terms of cybercrime, and I, I take all, you know some time to think about laws that we can use as precedent, but so much of this is new. So yes, we need regulations, but we're gonna to need to think a lot more about what those are gonna look like and be a lot more creative, because there's so much we don't know yet about what this technology holds, and one of the big premises in the book is that you don't have all the answers, I don't have all the answers, and anyone who says, I'm gonna save us all, I'm gonna connect us all through this technology is a really big red flag.
0: Well, part of the danger probably because of the Hollywood effect is we tend to anthropomorphize AI and you know we we, we, we we kind of have this idea that at some point we're going to connect enough systems and this hits a critical mass and it just wakes up and it either you know wants to be particularly helpful and solve all our problems or it wants to you know rule us and mm-hmm. it's sort of a you know I actually see even very intelligent people um, you know writing about AI in this way I mean even Elon Musk talks about it as if it's a killer robot but the danger I think is that by putting so much agency on the machines, we forget who actually built and designed them. And that in many ways, the great danger is that you're just automating bad decisions as opposed to giving decisions away to some new cybertronic entity who's making it for you.
1: Yeah, there's so much to unpack there in that very interesting statement. So I talk a lot about the anthropomorphization of machines, and there is no solid evidence one way or the other as to whether that's beneficial to do. What we do know is it's natural for us as humans to do it. Right. And we do know that out there most of the headlines are either the killer robots, you know, Terminator style, are going to kill us all or it's going to save us all. Now, some permutation of either of those could happen, but the reality is probably it's going to be a lot more insidious and a lot more in the gray area. Um, in terms of those things that creep up on us. And in terms of anthropomorphization, I think that one of the things you hit on and one of the radical and very important parts of my book is that I suggest even moving away from a human-centric view of building the tools of the future. We focus so much on modeling AI on the human brain, but we know so little about the human brain. And I suggest that opening our vantage point and widening our lens to think about all different, different types of intelligence will help us ride the line saying no that it's not probably going to look exactly like us but it doesn't have to be exactly like us to be worthy and to be valuable and I do think that opening ourselves up to different ways of thinking and different types of intelligence is going to be an essential skill to be adaptable no matter what comes because we don't know what's coming and as you said it probably isn't going to be exactly like us.
0: Actually, the, the example that really struck with me there was the um, octopus intelligence. Mm-hmm. Right? You know, I read that a wonderful book recently on on, oct- on, mm-hmm. on octopi, and it it basically put me off eating it, eating them mm. <laughs> permanently. But uh, you know, you talk about this wonderful example there of uh, an octopus who manages to just solve a, a uh, childproof lock. you know, quite quickly and remembers how to do it
1: indeed so that's billy from the seattle aquarium and yeah. billy comes up a lot i love the story of billy in chapter two i'm glad that you do too and yes there are other great books and um, researchers who have been talking about octopus intelligence and i think it's one of many beautiful examples as you said the octopus uh, has personality it can camouflage itself and billy in particular was able to open the childproof cap um, and enjoy the herring that had been stuffed in there as a, as a little experiment started at 55 minutes, and she got it down to five minutes flat. And the interesting thing about the octopus is they have distributed intelligence. So most of their brain activity is actually outside of the central system and is in their eight arms and in their hundreds of suckers. And in one concrete example, scientists at Raytheon are studying octopus intelligence because they think it might be better suited for the robotic systems they're building to explore distant planets. So an octopus can do incredible things. Someone has said that the octopus is the closest we'll ever get to studying alien intelligence and as you said it shifts our entire viewpoint about how we treat these creatures now and how much they have to teach us.
0: It feels we have enough on our plate trying to figure out how we manage AI's without worrying about whether they now have feelings. Um, (laughs) uh, I mean you know I I accept that at some point we're gonna have to think about these entities that we are unleashing Um, but for for now how how do you think we approach an, an ethical framework for the decisions that we delegated to automated systems? Uh, because you know, you know, we were talking about this earlier um, in regard to your work on genocide mm-hmm. and, and war crimes. But often the greatest evil is, is not done by a sort of a secret Illuminati group of you know bankers plotting the overthrow of the world. But it's a mid level product manager who's you know deciding some privacy setting on on, on Siri. You know, I mean, this is where you're going to see some of the greatest potential um, risk.
1: I think that part of why I wrote the book is that most of us feel so excluded from these conversations. And we have an increasing um, danger of a very small group of big companies making all of the decisions and designing the tools that are gonna affect all of us. So AI is no one thing. It's gonna affect every industry and every industry differently. And so much of of that decision making is in the hands of a very homogenous group of people. And malicious intent completely aside, that's dangerous, which is why I make arguments for diversity and inclusion and representation because no one of us has the lived experiences of everyone else. And as one example, in a book event I was speaking at recently when I was talking about my book, there was someone in the audience who's a programmer and he said, you know, I came in and I just want to write code and I'm a programmer and I think that that's my job, what I'm supposed to do. But, you know, now leaving this event, I can't just think about the code anymore. I have to think about how it's going to be used, where it's going to be used. And it was a really kind of special, beautiful, simple and profound moment that no one of us has all the answers. So it's going to take that type of responsibility and intentionality across the board. And I think that what's important about what you just said is that we all should have a voice and a say in the future. And so many of us feel like, you know what, this is over my head. I couldn't possibly understand it. We're going to the, you know, we're gonna leave it to the leaders and hope they do a good job. I say two things to that. First of all, if you read my book and aren't empowered, inspired, feel like you understand it and could really take this into your life, I didn't do my job. And the second thing is there's so much we can't fix and so much we don't know. But we do need to be able to trust the technology and the people that are building it. And there's some things we can do about that. More inclusion, more diversity, more moral courage in our leadership.
0: Because in a way, the the issue is not the technology itself because the the technology is maybe just a scaled up way of automating lots of micro decisions people have made in the past, um, which is probably its greatest risk. Uh, The question is how do you then get to the early decisions that are being made? So in the past, you might have a, a, a corporate policy about granting bank loans. Uh, which was then upheld by you know thousands of employees. Now one person can design that into a system, which then affects millions. So I- is it about better ethical training for the people building the systems? Is it, um, as you say, more diverse teams building the systems? Is it you know government review processes? I mean, how do we sort of? How do we start to activate that?
1: Yeah, so I have some pretty specific economic, political, policy uh, solutions in Chapter 7 for anyone who's interested, but you talked about automation, and just like the history of technology, we've been automating jobs and tasks for a long time. This is nothing new. The difference is the scale and the magnitude, so some estimates say 47% in the US alone. It could be whole jobs, it could be just tasks. We don't know, but what we do know is that AI and computerization will be the biggest disruptors in the history of labor economies. Again this has happened before but the scale is so enormous and so again in terms of thinking about policies and ethical frameworks I do propose the international human rights framework as the not perfect but the closest we've ever gotten as a universal uh, universally accepted idea about basic dignities and human rights for all people and I think that what you're saying is so incredibly important because if we have a big organization that's focused on profit. And there's one person in there that eventually creates a tool that automates discrimination and prejudice and inequality on a massive scale. In such a complex system, we could be beyond the point where we could fix that. And we're we're, we're not even talking about the future. We're talking about present. Yeah. So racism, sexism, discrimination are already built into the tools that we're creating. And, and it
0: may be unintentional. It could just be they've built a tool on a flawed data set.
1: Oh, 100%, we're already seeing flawed data sets that are flagging, you know, all the doctors are women or racist images um, towards black people or discrimination against any group. And so, what's happening is marginalized communities are being further marginalized. And we are at very grave risk of automating inequality on a massive scale. So, again, the tools are new, but the questions are the oldest questions we've ever asked ourselves, which is how do we learn to treat our, each other with dignity and respect? And I I think we have so many examples of, for example, in the US Constitution, women were specifically excluded enslaved black people were only three-fifths of a person, not even to be an actual person, but for representation by the Southern Congress. So this has happened before.
0: Even in Australia, the indigenous population were treated as flora and fauna. There you go. <laughs> the Another census. horrifying example <laughs>
1: yeah. that we are still reeling from and that communities are still harmed from every day. So, so much of that is having more people at the table and more voices and more lived experiences to say, hey, have you thought about that? This is marginalized uh you know the disabled community this is marginalized different age groups different socioeconomic status because not only do we not have much diversity in terms of gender makeup and racial makeup at the people building these tools for all of us Like most of these tools are being built by people that came from like the same two or three schools. We don't have enough cognitive diversity. So expanding our notions of intelligence is incredibly important because we can't predict what's happening next. We are gonna stumble and fail and get up again, but we need to build more trust into both the machines and also the people behind them. And we can't do that until we um, have more diversity at the table.
0: The danger is, of course, uh, and this was raised, I think, by Kai-Fu Lee in his recent book, Mm -hmm. AI Superpowers, Mm -hmm. is that whatever ethical knots the West ties themselves into, China will just forge ahead, building the most extreme, uh, pragmatic and economically efficient version of their own AI, potentially with disregard to any international rights and norms.
1: Indeed, so, um, and he obviously can speak very well to that. I used to live in China as well, um, and of course they talk about China in the book, and um, that is a real, not just future danger, but present danger, and that is really uh, already happening. Um, though there is another way I think another reason that I wrote the book is that I take a global perspective so especially in the US there's a very exceptionalist tendency to say oh well there's no model for this there are plenty of incredible ideas that people have come up with all around the world and in fact in AI Europe and Australia are some of the regions really leading the way um, and the US is actually falling behind China of course as you said for a lot of different reasons is able to forge ahead faster in a lot of different ways Um, ultimately though I propose a global framework because like climate disaster this is a global issue yeah. and in the digital space we're still very much in a wild west unregulated and apps are global and- <laughs> you know yes p- people
0: beat up on Facebook but TikTok is you know which is the one that all the kids like today
1: exactly that right exactly kids are getting off Facebook they're like yeah exactly that's <laughs> you know that's for my aunt's cousin I'm going on TikTok. exactly so the tools are changing very fast and just like with ecological collapse or potential nuclear annihilation we're going to need global approaches. Now, there are solutions to be found if we can work together. One of the things I talk about in the book, as you know, is this idea of collective intelligence. Individually, we can feel very small, and especially when we think about nation states and exceptionalism and tribalism and all of this happening in such isolated silos, that's very problematic. But together, there's really no star we can't dream of exploring, but we're going to have to tap into kind of the innate sagacity and intelligence and creativity that's all around us, from the environment to animal intelligence to kind of a global level of cooperation in order to, to make some of these changes happen.
0: Well, one of the things that people talk about is is trying to build more empathy and ethical awareness into machines, mm-hmm. uh, and it, it's one of those things that. To me, raises sometimes more questions than it answers, because, you know, how how do you tell the machine to do the right thing when you don't? It's actually hard to define what the right thing is. And and I think one of the beauties of some of the early forms of science fiction is that they were quite explicit. They would say, look, just don't hurt other human beings. You know, you know what I mean? It's like they'd never had to deal with the trolley problem, right? But 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 you know, even the simplest ethical statement is ambiguous. Uh, because it's it's contextual.
1: Indeed. So my fellow sci-fi nerds will be very happy with the book because <laughs> I talk a lot about sci-fi. I think dystopian and, and sci-fi literature and film cinema can teach us a lot. And in fact, some tech companies are hiring sci-fi writers to help them imagine the future. Well,
0: N- Neil Stevenson was actually the first employee at uh, um, uh, Blue Origin.
1: There you go. Yeah. So the, you know, the examples of how important uh, dystopian and just literature in general is to thinking about the future. So... It's a great question, it comes up a lot, and um, again, as a human rights lawyer, I think about these questions all the time, and there is no one easy answer um, to any of this. And what I say to that always is that, and there are some people like Isaiah Berlin that say values are incommensurable. You couldn't possibly pick between equality or freedom ever. So um, that is a real reality. And whatever we do is going to be imperfect. But what I say is that we have to try and we have to go down swinging no matter what. Because just by having these conversations, we become better people in the process. Because one of the things I propose in the book is we need to build things like empathy, values, principles, ethics, and morals into machines. We don't know if we can do that. Some people are trying. Um, But what we do know is that by having these conversations, just even starting to have them in and of itself, we start to inch closer. No one of us is going to get all the way there but when we start to have these discussions we start to be a lot more intentional about what we're building and what is going to come from it because right now so much of the mantra in Silicon Valley or building these tools is build it now ask permission later or build it now and figure out the consequences later and we don't have the luxury of that and we still have far too few voices in the room to even just bring up the question of values
0: yeah I think what i was asking was more the pragmatic question of how you approach this i mean even in, in human rights um if you it's how specific do you get i mean do you frame things in a general way that allows interpretation which says you know you should respect other human beings um or do you say specifically you should not do the following 200 things wow um, because from a machine perspective it, it's some of the 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 some of the best dystopian uh, scenarios start from a seemingly innocuous mm-hmm. um, optimization, you mm-hmm. know, like make things better for people, which, you know, you could end up with a Jonathan Swift type solution, which you eat all the babies, you know, yes, just to, like to the solve. paperclip robot. Yeah,
1: exactly. And
0: actually, you know, often these come from a very naively expressed. Uh, set of optimums.
1: Yeah, so there's a lot in there. So there's, of course, the paperclip robot suggested by Nick Bostrom, which essentially it's great that you have a f- this efficient, productive robot. Let's say you tell it to make paperclips. Yeah. That's all great and fine until it decides that you are made of atoms that it can <laughs> use to make paperclips, right? So we have that happening all the time. And lawyers, of course, think about all all the time, well, you're going to set out a contract, for example, but how specific do you get? And there are always going to be loopholes. Um, and we're always going to be evolving. Just like our most beautiful, legal societal documents are evolving The Constitution, the South African Constitution, is a beautiful example coming out of apartheid, but it still, of course, is imperfect both in language and in enforcement. So this is an evolving process. We start with precedent, and in Chapter 4 I lay out a very specific suggestion that we use the International Human Rights Framework as a way to start, because a lot of the issues around privacy, around rights, start there. However, we're going to need to evolve that to include things like cognitive liberty, the right to decide, you know, your mental thoughts, to keep them private, to keep your personalities you were born right. with it. So all of these things need to be evolving based on creatively thinking beyond our present reality to give ourselves the best chance to get it right. So in terms of specifics, this is these are legal questions that happen all the time. It was too broad, so we lumped everyone in. Or it was too specific and we forgot this. That's the nature of being human. And what you bring up is a really important point, which is that so much is about the predicting and the forecasting. And some are going to be right and some are going to be wrong. My book is let's be ready no matter what happens. And when we fail, we will try again because we will fail. And I do believe we need to balance being really intentional, but living the questions themselves because we have so many more questions than answers. And we don't know if we can succeed in doing any of this. But we do know that if we don't try, we definitely cannot guarantee um, that we'll be leaving this planet better off than how we found it and the other thing is that when we're thinking about building these ideas into machines yes we need to try to do that but in the process doing that as you said it's a mirror of us so we become better people even when we don't completely get all the way there
0: no it's a uh, and it is it is interesting when you look at even um, organizations that are held up with esteem steam today they had a murky past sometimes with technology I mean IBM, you know, mm-hmm. is said to have used those those technologies, you know, during mm-hmm. the Holocaust. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, e- even the earliest days of the computer were about the census. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, which, as you say, excluded whole, vast parts of society. Mm-hmm. So, uh, d- have you come across any interesting examples of companies or institutions or organisations who are starting to think about this in a in a progressive way.
1: Yeah, and as you know, there's a thousand endnotes in the book for anyone <laughs> that really wants to dive into the research and understand some of the many suggestions, groups, Individuals, organizations that are doing this work. One of the things I propose throughout the book and specifically in Chapter 7 is that we need to think about entrepreneurship and social entrepreneurship as ways for more agile, flexible, uh, purpose-oriented companies to get into the game. Because right now this stuff is being built at very large companies and even places like Cambridge and Oxford are complaining that all their talent is being poached. So we aren't (laughs) even having that robust academic debate that we need. Um, One small example, and I don't even want to call it a small example out of the many is that right now what is the gender of the voice of most virtual assistants? Female, right? So it's a female voice for these virtual assistants which which poses a host of problems about gender inequality and sexism um, but there's a company called Sage that came out with the VA called a virtual assistant called Peg with a gender-neutral voice And that came from someone, a smaller business in the market, saying, hey, we can change this approach and provide more equality in the process. So that's an example of entrepreneurial creative ways we can get more people with more lived experiences to say, hey, did you think about something that might be helping us with gender equality at the same time? But there's a thousand examples in there, and many, many brilliant people are working on these issues, which is what gives me hope.
0: So you are an optimist.
1: <laughs> <laughs> um, I get that question a lot. And so ultimately, the book is radical because it's ultimately a hopeful and optimistic one. Now, I'm a human rights lawyer, I was a war crimes and genocide lawyer. I've seen the worst in humanity, but it also means I've seen the best. Resilience, courage and bravery. And I believe that, first of all, being hopeful is a rebellion in our global political climate. It's a rebellion to be optimistic. The second thing is I don't believe we can afford not to be. No matter what happens, we want to go down swinging and say, I did the best I could alongside my fellow you know, members of human civilization to um, leave a planet and a place to live that I would be proud to leave to the ages and to our children's children. We have to try, and then again, no matter what happens, we become better people in the process.
0: You've been listening to Between Worlds, For more episodes and information on how to subscribe to our podcast, please visit www.mike-walsh.com slash between worlds.